You're listening to That'll Preach, a weekly segment on the Four Oaks Midtown podcast where we have conversations about culture and theology. We're releasing new episodes every Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. And we'd love to hear some feedback as well. Share with your friends. And uh, these conversations are going to be helpful for you. We've been going through, uh, we, we just finished a series on the seven deadly sins. And uh, you can check that out. It should be all archived on the, on the podcast. But uh, we are going to start a new uh, series of conversations called Old Dead Guys. O-D-G. What do you think about that, Paul? Very creative marketing. It is, and it like went through several different variations before we got to that one. Dead old guys, <laughs> guys old guys. and dead, yeah. guys old comma dead. But uh, really what we want to do is we want to examine important Christian ideas, ideas that should shape the way we think about church, the way mm-hmm. we think about God, the way we think about everything. And we want to we wanna invite uh, theologians from the history of the church who have done great work, whose works have survived thousands of years in some cases, and help them or, or bring them in to help us understand these important concepts. So really what we're trying to do is instead of, we don't want to have a boring history lecture on these dead guys, but we do want you to be introduced to them. So we figured one of the best ways to do that is let's let's think about important ideas that we all should care about and, and use them as guides to help us think better about some of these doctrines. Are you down with that, Paul? Do you like that? Oh, yeah. Is the philosopher in you just erupting with joy? At the thought of doing a history lesson instead of philosophy? Oh, yeah. It's hard because he's a philosopher. You don't actually know when he feels joy or not. His face, <laughs> your joy face, your, it's, it's all the same face. You're just stoic, stoic, mm. as we say. But uh, so that's the beginning. We're, we're going we're gonna to kick off that series today. So we're going to talk about a Christian important idea, and then we're going we're gonna to recruit a, uh, a church history theologian person person <laughs> to help us understand it. So the first one we're doing is on the incarnation, the incarnation, which Good stuff. really the incarnation, essentially what that means is God became a man. Mm-hmm. God became man. That's the heart of Christianity, that uh, Jesus Christ is God. But that one sentence needs to be explained, right? What do you yeah. mean by man? What do you mean when you say Jesus is a man? What, how are we defining man? Mm-hmm. And when we say Jesus is God, how are we defining God? Mm-hmm. Right? And I remember having a conversation with uh, some Mormons, <laughs> oddly enough. And, you know, they would say things like, we believe Jesus is God. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe in the same God. Mm-hmm. They're using the same words, but they mean entirely different things by that. That's right. And, you know, it's kind of like you're trying to evangelize to, let's say, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness and they're like, oh, yeah, Jesus is God. And you're like, check, check, uh, check. He's like, and we believe he saved us. And like, okay, yeah. I guess we're done here. You know, yeah, no. yeah. But they mean, again, we have to define what we mean. Because there's a lot of ways you can go wrong. A lot of ways you can go claims. wrong. A lot yeah. of ways people have gone wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? 2,000 years. 2,000. <laughs> right, right. And that's why it's important to study church history. Hmm. Right? That's why it's important to understand the creeds. So we don't make the same mistakes. And right. And we can learn from their mistakes. Right. Yeah. Right. So... Uh, why don't you talk about a little, just give us a brief outline of where we've gone wrong in the history of the church. Just in general. In, in general, <laughs> just, right? But with regard to the incarnation, God becoming man, when we say Jesus is God and Jesus is man, where have we gone wrong in history? And how can church creeds and history help us kind of 
straighten things out a little yeah. bit. You know what I'm saying? I mean, from from really from the beginning, like from the apostles' teaching and onward, there was a commitment of the early church to the fact that Jesus is God. So just from the Bible, just from oral teachings and traditions and the teachings of the apostles, um, this was like one of the fundamental beliefs of the early church. But as people were asking questions, like trying to do a little bit more of the, like trying to articulate more specifically, what does it mean when we say Jesus is God? Um, there arose like certain patterns of mistakes in how to answer that question. So one of the most famous ones was uh, thinking of Jesus, the Son of God, as a creation of the Father. So this was uh, proposed and defended by uh, one of the most famous heretics in church history, Arius, who was Egyptian, um, and he was a deacon. Where all the biggest <laughs> heretics come from. They're all Egyptian, aren't they? And a lot of the heroes of the faith, too. Yeah. <laughs> Where are the Chinese heroes of the faith? You know, That's true. Yeah. Well, Brian's saying. I'll be the first. That's right. That's right. But we've got, um, we've got Arius, who's defending this view that uh, basically there was once when the sun was not. Sun there, S-O-N, talking about the Son of God. So Arius believed that Jesus, the Son of God, was super powerful, was the greatest of all creation, but still um, the Son of God was created by the Father. And so this is problematic, whereas when we look back through the lens of church history, this is obviously a bad way of looking at the question of Jesus being God. Um, but in those like early few centuries, this was a live option for a lot of people. And so Arius was a really charismatic uh, preacher, speaker. He would like appeal to the common folk. And so this view took off like wildfire and a lot of people became Arians. They followed Arius in this belief that the son of God was a creation of the father. Now, one person who stood really opposed to Arius was Athanasius, who was also an Egyptian. They were both deacons in the same church. Can you actually. imagine that? that? Is so Can awkward. you imagine the, like, they just show up at the same meeting and like, they're just like, they're just like we're not talking to each, each other. other. Yeah, yeah, I know. Can you, oh man. Super passive aggressive. I mean, actually aggressive. Like this was, right. they this were was going, not, yeah. this they was totally over. They really didn't like each other. Um, and it came to the point where a, what's called the first ever international Christian council <laughs> was called and um, in Nicaea, which is in Turkey today, a council, they invited a thousand bishops, about 300 of them actually came, wow. but they were trying to settle the issue of like, how are we to understand the son of God? Wait a minute. They invited a thousand and only 300 showed up. I mean, travel was hard back in those yeah. days. Yeah, donkeys and I don't know. It's like, we're skipping this conference. <laughs> can't I mean, pay for can't find a good hotel. That's pretty good, actually. Yeah. That's it's like three. Three, out of, three out of 10. That's not bad. I Man. wish we had those numbers. Wonderful. Yeah, they're like, we missed out on shaping church history. That's true. Um, but yeah, so that was that was the first of what's called the ecumenical councils, meaning like all of the Christians were invited and represented. And so Arius got to put forward his position. Athanasius actually was kind of a minor figure. He was there with the bishop of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. um, so he was he was there kind of in the background. He was only 27 at the time. So I think really? he was younger than me. Yeah. Oh my um, gosh. But he was he was known for like being staunchly against Arius, and arguably he wrote some of the defenses that ended up being used by the council. Um, and yeah, so the, the council ruled that Arius was wrong, that the view that the sun was created was not biblical, 
didn't mesh well with the biblical texts, uh, specifically John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there the Son is equal with the Father in substance. And so we have this term being coined at that council that Jesus, the Son of God, is the same substance with the Father. Um, some of the bishops want to compromise and say, well, Jesus was a similar substance. Uh, but at the end of the day, the true view won out and God providentially did not allow his church to compromise, right? So it would have been easy to compromise, to satisfy all the bishops, whatever. Um, but the true view that the Son of God is the exact same substance of with the Father, light of light, truth of truth, eternal, all that stuff. The Son and the Father are equal. That was the view that won out. And Athanasius was one of those big key players. He wrote uh, on the incarnation of the Word, which is arguably like one of the best introductory texts into looking at who Jesus is as the Son of God. And yeah, like he was, he got termed uh, the Black Dwarf. He was dark skinned and short, and his enemies really disliked him. Um, he was exiled five times when he was the Bishop of Alexandria because even after the council, Arians tried to displace him and it was like, it was crazy. He but sacrificed a lot. Yeah. yeah, he stood against the world, which was his slogan. People called him Athanasius against the world. He stood for the truth. And thanks to him, um, thanks to his insights, we have a much clearer view into the incarnation now. What's fascinating about him is that he was very biblical. I mean, he's, he's mm. you know, so much of this is, just to kind of summarize what you're saying, the church was wrestling over yeah. words. Yeah. When we say that Jesus is God, mm -hmm. do we mean God as in, you know, like an exalted human being or human or being given super or Hercules, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Technically, he's a God, right? right. A right. God or something like that. No, the Christian is saying Jesus is God, like mm. the, the one true God right. of the Old Testament, right? All Jesus is him. True of him. Right, yep. right. Mm -hmm. All things are true, full stop. There's yep. no. God 1A or God 1B, mm -hmm. Jesus is God full stop. And again, going to John 1, they were really wrestling through scripture. Oh yeah. The word was in the beginning. Mm -hmm. The word is distinct from God. Yep. And yet the word was God. Mm. And yet the word, before the word, nothing was made. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. the apostle John, he's not using modern Trinitarian language, but he has a concept of, of understanding the divinity of Jesus that, that, the son has always existed. Right. That the father didn't exist for a hundred years and at one point create another <laughs> God called the son. Right. But the son has always been there in the beginning. Mm. And Athanasius, you know, he really, like you said, he, he suffered a lot for it. And it seems like the, one of his big things was that Jesus had to become a man and he mm. also had to be God. And yeah. oftentimes we only yeah. think about, you know, it's like, could, could God have sent an angel to die for our sins? Mm -hmm. uh, could God have sent a spirit to die for our sins? Why did he have to be a man? And then mm -hmm. why did he have to be God? Why was the incarnation necessary? Yeah. Um, talk about that a little bit. What does, what does uh, Athanasius bring to the table in understanding why God became man? Yeah. So um, just to distill, uh, let's, let's just put these into bullets. So like number one, like the answer to that is if God, if Jesus is not God and man, then he can't save us. In order to save us, he has to be one of us, but he can't just be another human. He has to be human and divine in order to take humanity, repair it, and then unite us to himself. So if you've got God, <laughs> like incarnate in an alien, that's not going to do anything for humanity. 
And if you've got a really souped up human, um, who's just like really powerful, but not divine, then it's not clear how, like what the death of that person is going to do to save us. So in hum- in Jesus, humanity and divinity meet perfectly. And it's in that union that we can die with Christ. We can rise with Christ. He can give us all of the heavenly blessings. He can heal humanity. The church fathers talk about um, that which the Son of God assumed in his body or took on. He was able to heal it. So our minds, our flesh, our desires, our affections. Uh, the Son of God had all of those in his humanity. So by living that human life perfectly in obedience to the Father and then dying, swallowing up death in his body, it's that theme of like in Chronicles of Narnia, when Aslan dies on the stone table, the law said that if an innocent person was to die on that stone table, the stone table would crack. And so like the instrument by which God destroys death is death itself. He swallows death in his body He gives humanity a new humanity. So that's why it's like really important that Jesus be fully human, fully God, and truly in those two senses. It wouldn't work if he was just a souped up human. It wouldn't work if he was divinity attached to something else that's not a human being. Well, we see in Romans 5, there's, you know, Paul makes the case, death and sin came through a man, Mm -hmm. Adam. Yep. So it makes sense that life and and righteousness and 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 hope would come through another man, the mm. second Adam and Jesus. Yeah. So there's that parallel that uh, that the 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 fall of the, the the curse of death is attached to the fall of humanity. Mm. So the only person that can pay for that debt has to be a human, right? Who assumes our place. He has mm-hmm. to be like us. Yeah. But he also has to be God, and that he can give new life. That he has the power to actually overcome mm-hmm. death. Yeah. And uh, talk, what's that illustration the, that Athanasius yeah. uses about the king? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. He talks about how it's through union with Christ that we're saved. So he gives this example of like um, when a king goes into a village and like occupies one of the houses there, like somebody invites the king in, hosts them. The whole village is like exalted through that, through the fact that the king decided to condescend, go into the village and live in one of those houses Now the whole village is honored and exalted and is blessed because of the king's presence there. So in the same way, God inhabited one of those houses. He inhabited the human body. He took a human flesh to himself. And in doing that, he exalts humanity. He honors humanity. He, in the same way that Adam was the representative who failed, he was the king who dishonored the village. Jesus is the king who honors the village, who does what Adam couldn't do and raises humanity up in himself. So it's kind of like a really beautiful image of what's taking place there in the incarnation. Well, it brings it back to personal, like it brings it into the sphere of relationships. Sometimes we Mm -hmm. can think too transactionally, like our goal is to be forgiven of sins and Jesus is just a tool to get to that. Right. Now, we need to be forgiven of sins, Mm -hmm. but there's more to it than that. Yeah. That something is broken in our humanity. Mm-hmm. That we're not just people who do bad things. We are fundamentally bad people. Right. I mean, if you think about when we just went through the seven deadly sins, mm-hmm. you read that and you're like, I don't have half a second where I'm not <laughs> self-focused. Or I mean, we're, yeah. we're just seriously messed up. Mm-hmm. And so the incarnation shows us how serious it is that it's, you know, something that Athanasius mentions is he says that repentance is not enough. Yeah. It's not enough to go, oh, I'm bad. I need to change. Right. Because the issue is you 
can't. Right. You're broken. There's something mm-hmm. messed up. Your, your, your hardware, your operating system is mm-hmm. so bent yep. that you can't fix yourself. Right. That God actually has to become like you mm-hmm. and bring up your humanity to back to what he originally created it to be. Mm. And that, it shows the depth of our sin, but also the grace of God's grace. Mm-hmm. You know, like how powerful it is that Jesus came to give us uh, a new life, not just to give us a clean slate. Mm-hmm. Like, what is a clean slate for? It's so that we can be brought back into relation with God and then made into the people that we were always meant to be, mm. that he created us to be. Yeah. Um, and just so this doesn't sound like too abstract, like this is coming from scripture. Right. So uh, we're talked about being raised to new life with Christ, union with Christ being the mechanism by which we're saved. Uh Think of it like almost like Velcro. So like we're one side of Velcro. God comes down in the form of Jesus with Velcro. And when he dies and raises from the dead, he pulls us up with him. Yeah. So in baptism, in entry into the body of Christ, we're united to God by the Holy Spirit. We have a new humanity. And in Christ's death and resurrection, we too die and rise with Christ. And Paul talks about how even now we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. So there's a kind of like dimension where everything that's true of Christ is true of us, both in his death and his resurrection and in all of what he's inheriting from the father, he gives to us as well as co-heirs with him. That's only possible if he's God taking on humanity, if he truly is the perfect God man. And he's not just the perfect God man, he's the perfect man Mm. in the sense that he shows us what human beings are supposed to be like. Yeah, I I'm, I have conversations with people, and, and I think we've all thought this, where you kind of view Christianity as you have to be like a monk. Like, it's about denying your human urges. Uh, you'll hear sometimes people say, well, I'm only human, and, and, and saying, you know, it, it's just about denying any kind of pleasure, mm. denying all these things that we think natural. Like, we think it's natural to want to have, you know, multiple partners right you know multiple sexual partners something like that Mm -hmm. or it's natural to uh be envious of other people or it's natural to want to look out for yourself as number one and be greedy and hoard Mm -hmm. things and it's a tough world out there you guys so we we associate these things with that's what it means to be human Mm -hmm. and when you want to be a christian you're trying to be something other than human you're trying to just float above the fray as this detached monk-like figure Mm -hmm. and we imagine jesus is like that and the reality of the incarnation is God saying, actually, human beings are not supposed to be selfish. Mm. That is not how you were programmed to be. You weren't supposed to be sexually promiscuous. You weren't supposed to be idolatrous. You weren't supposed to envy people and compare people and scroll through Instagram and wish you had their life and not be content in your life mm-hmm. and, and see people's bank accounts and wish you had that. And we're not actually made to be like that. And we know that by experience, because when we do that, it's like our life caves in on, we get depressed and angry and anxious and and we just get work. Like nobody is ever like, I just need to be a little more greedy Mm. and then I'll be okay. Mm -hmm. Never happens. I just need to like fulfill my desire to feel better than other people. And then I'll finally make it. We Mm. know this. And Jesus comes and goes, you, this is not how you were. This is not what humanity is supposed to be like. I am showing you what it means to be a human. You're not becoming less human when you grow in Christ's likeness. When you when you become more like me, you're not becoming less human. You're right. becoming more human. Yeah. Becoming exactly what a human being is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Somebody who is outward in their life, 
who is, who is dependent upon God, who is joyful in the joy of others, who mourns with other people, mm-hmm. who cares for other people who don't have what they have, and who lives a life of sacrifice. Yeah. And a, a life detached from the vain things of the world and who loves good and justice and hope, and right? And all these things that just prevents, that, that uh, presents such a beautiful picture of humanity. That's what we're supposed to be. Yeah. And there's this line in church history about the definition of grace, where grace, God's grace, perfects nature. So grace doesn't subvert nature or change or radically undermine the kind of thing you are. What God's grace is, is it helps you and enables you to become the thing you're supposed to be. So just in practical terms, God's grace, when given to us as humans, like you said, Brian, it's not making us less human, but it sees the way that we're supposed to be and enables us to be that way. So it it perfects us. It sees that our nature is broken and effaced and the image of God in us is there, but distorted. And what God's grace does through the Holy Spirit, it makes us more into the thing that we're supposed to be. And in Jesus, we know what that thing looks like. It looks like the perfect human living in perfect relationship with God without sin, loving people, um, totally attuned to the Father's will and totally in selfless service to others for the glory of God. Like that's that's what a true human life looks like. And it's only through grace that we can do that. And, and the life of Christ shows us also like dependency on the Father. We see the prayer life of Jesus. So even being the Son of God, he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit to do his miracles. He agonized and prayed for nights. He went into the wilderness and fasted to beat his body into submission, to bring his will into accord with the Father's will. Um, and even up to Gethsemane, the last major wrestle and struggle in his life where he gives his will over to the Father again, that is the perfect picture of submission to the will of God. That's what true humanity looks like. And he loved to obey God. Mm. I mean, that was his joy to, to obey the Father. And what I always wonder is, it seems like in modern evangelicalism, a lot of times it's like, here's what Jesus did. You don't have to obey the law, the law anymore. Like you, you can't obey the law, which is true. None of us can obey the law, mm-hmm. right? We sin always. We're never going to be perfect in this life. But instead of mourning the fact that we can't obey the law, we glory in it. Like, it, it, like it's a, we, we can't, we, we, we love our brokenness mm-hmm. <laughs> when it should make us go, man, I w- wouldn't you love to obey the 10 commandments? You'd love God perfectly. Yeah. You'd love your neighbor perfectly. You'd never cheat, steal, lie. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd be perfectly content in your life. That's a great life. Don't you wish you could do the law? And the hope of the incarnation is one day we will do it perfectly. Yeah. And in doing it perfectly, we will be perfectly happy. Mm-hmm. That will be our great joy mm. because we'll finally be what we were programmed to be. And that is missing a lot in if we just, you know, why, why couldn't Jesus show up for a day, die and rise as a 33-year-old man? Mm-hmm. No, he was born. He grew up and he went through three decades of life on this earth mm-hmm. to sh- because he needed to really be a human. Not because he wanted to eliminate our humanity, but because he wanted to restore it. And I think, you know, when, when we become a Christian, we don't, you don't, you didn't stop being Paul. Like you are Paul Rezcala, right? You're a human being. And you becoming a Christian doesn't erase your personality or your distinct features or anything like that. It, it, it takes it, what's already there, 
and it removes the sin and elevates it back to what your original design was. So you're still going to be Paul, right? Right. You're still going to be who you are, but you're going to be who you are. 2.0. 2.0, right? No <laughs> sin. And, and I think that gives us a sense of, of, of not having to think that Christianity is fitting into this subculture mm. where we talk mm. this way, where we dress this way, where we like these things, where we listen to these pastors. We li- it's like that's not what it's about, mm. right? We're not trying to remove, you know, the distinct things about humanity or what it means to be human or the different personalities that we have. Right. That's not what it's about. It's about God changing who we are in our moral life to look like Jesus. Mm-hmm. But that's going to look different based on our personality. Some people are more emotional, some people are less emotional. That, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, does that make any sense? Yeah. Did I just have like a mental seizure? In, on <laughs> 46% of it made sense. Okay. And the okay. rest of it will help people forget. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. But uh, really important stuff, Right. So, uh, again, this is uh, uh, the first episode of what we hope will be a really helpful series. We're going to look at more uh, topics, and uh, we're going to, again, recruit some of these theologians of times past to help us understand. But again, subscribe. Check back on Tuesdays. We're going to have new episodes. And thank you for listening.